If you can have your Bibles open, or if you can just look up on the screen, our passage for today's message comes to us from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 35 down to verse 38. Please follow along as I read it out loud. Hear now the reading of God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in to his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is so faithful. You are faithful to send the rain. You are so faithful to send the sun. You are so faithful in providing the very atmosphere that we need to have life, breath in our lungs, food for our stomach, shelter for our bodies. God, we look to you and we ask yet again, would you be faithful? For we need your word to come and speak to us. Lord, you know the week that we've had. You know the trek that we have gone on these past six days the things that we've had to encounter, the people that we had to interact with, the person that we had to look at in the mirror. You know all the hardships and the heartaches and difficulties and boredom and frustrations that we had to endure. And now we come to you hungry and thirsty, asking for you to feed us, to give us streams of living water so that we may be refreshed, that we may be energized. We may be renewed to go back out into the world and continue the task that you have commissioned us to do. But Lord, before you send us off, let us now sit at your feet and that you would bless us and that you would empower us and encourage us and equip us through the preaching of the word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, as a pastor, I know when something or someone is very important to that person when they ask me to pray for that something or someone. Again, as a pastor, I know that something or someone is important to a person when they ask prayer for that specific something or someone. For example, many of you have come to me or Pastor James and have asked, Pastor, can you please pray for my parents? Pray for my mom. Pray for my dad. They're going through something right now or they're sick and they need prayer. I need for you to pray for them. And what that tells me when you ask for that prayer request is that mom and dad are very important to you as they should be. Others of you have come up to me and said something of the sort of like, Pastor John, can you pray for my upcoming exam? Can you pray for my upcoming job interview that I have? Because school and work is very important to you as it should be, right? What you ask prayer for reflects what you value, what you prioritize, what you deem to be of first importance. So with that said, we ask the question, what does Jesus prioritize? What does Jesus feel is of great importance? What for Jesus is the most important thing as far as he is concerned? Well, maybe all we need to ask is, what did Jesus ask us to pray for? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever considered some of the things that Jesus asks us to pray for? Because I think if we answer that question, we can come to the same conclusion, to the conclusions that I've come to when you ask prayer for me, which is 
Just like prayer, in terms of what we ask other people to pray for, reveals what we value, what we prioritize, what we see of great importance, so also, when we consider what Jesus asks us to pray for, that that too reflects what he values, what he prioritizes, what he sees of great importance. But that's the question. What exactly is that? We're beginning a new eight-week sermon series entitled, What Now, NCF? What Now, NCF? And the whole purpose of this series is to ask ourselves, in light of the recent congregational vote, where God clearly spoke through his people, where, yes, God is calling us, he is commanding us to go for in faith in this direction of becoming our own independent church, we now ask ourselves, well, in light of that audacious, tremendous call, what are we as a church called to do now? What should we think about as a priority? What should we think about of first importance? Well, I can think of no better way of beginning this series by first asking, well, what does Jesus say in the Bible is of great importance, of great priority, of first importance? Well, as we take a look at this passage in Matthew 9, Jesus tells us exactly what it is. What is of great importance to Jesus? It's this thing known as the harvest. The harvest. So, With that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today from today's passage. First, why the harvest is important to Jesus. Second, why the harvest is not important to us. And finally, how the harvest can be important to us. Why the harvest is important to Jesus. Why it's not important to us and us being Christians. And finally, how the harvest can be important to us Christians. Okay, let's jump right in first. Why the harvest is important to us. Now, before we can actually go into explaining why the harvest is so important to Jesus, we first have to answer quickly the question, well, what exactly is Jesus talking about when he refers to the harvest? What exactly is this harvest? Well, if you consider what he says right before he talks about the harvest in our passage, it's very easy to pick up what he means by that term. Read again what Jesus says in verse 36. Can we have our passage up? He says this in verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. A harvest is, by definition, a bunch of crops, right? A crowd, by definition, is a bunch of people. So just by simple logic, it's clear that when Jesus is referring to harvest, he's talking about people, It's people. He's talking about people, right? Harvest is referring to human beings. Sam got the joke, right? I'll tell you afterwards if you're curious. The harvest is referring to people. So quickly, we can say initially the reason why the harvest is important to Jesus is because human beings are important to Jesus. People are important to Jesus. Now, some of you who grew up going to church and you're a Christian here, you're like, uh, duh, pastor. We know for Jesus, our God, People are important. In fact, that's almost ridiculous for you to even have to point out. That's so obvious. Of course, for Jesus, for our God, people are important. God does care about people. Duh, that's so obvious. But Christian, what is so obvious to you may not really be obvious to those outside of these walls. Case in point, back in 2013, right at the very beginning, when the whole marriage, uh, gay marriage debate was hitting the tipping point in our culture, the Huffington Post came out with a news article entitled, Why God Does Not Care About You. Take a listen to what the author says as I read together. Can we have the uh, article up, please? There we go. Listen to what he says. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't care who wins the college football national championship or American Idol. He doesn't care whose house is spared from a tornado or whose city gets flooded by a hurricane. Maybe God once gave a lewd 
look to Mother Teresa after a few glasses of Manischewitz, but that's it. God doesn't care about countries or people. We know this because all nations and peoples have claimed to be God's people. But God has not offered an official endorsement on any of the major networks. Until that happens, I say he's holding off for better candidates. God is the creator of the universe. He is the architect of a fabulous, cosmotastic machine whose true dimensions we will never fully comprehend. Yet people are convinced that this incredible and inconceivable being gets pissy if some guy sleeps with another guy. Doesn't the prime mover have anything better to do than to get angry at stuff like this? The universe is a petri dish. God swirled the happy juice around, poured us into the dish, put us in the incubator, and now he's on the outside looking in, seeing what grows, what lives and what dies, what works and what doesn't. So don't look to God to help you pay your credit card bills or pick your lucky lottery numbers. He doesn't care. Like it or not, we are on our own. We are on our own. Those are some very brutal and very dark words, and yet they are the cultural mindset of our society when it comes to God, at least those who believe there might be a God, in terms of his general attitude towards humanity, and that is God doesn't care about mankind. God doesn't care about humanity, at least not the way Christians think that they do, and yet if you look at what scripture says, it's the complete opposite of what our God, Jesus Christ, how he is betrayed. Read again what it says in verse 36. He saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our scripture passage, our Bible tells us that our God, in spite of what society says, God cares deeply for man. He cares deeply for mankind. He cares for those who are human beings. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to show us how much he cares by expressing his reaction to those who are suffering. What is Jesus' reaction to those who are suffering, to humanity that is suffering? What does it say? He had what? Compassion. Compassion. Let's pause for just a moment and let's linger on that word compassion because in our culture today, that word compassion is used comparably to the way our society uses the word love, right? Compassion, like love, can mean different things to different people, right? Case in point, you know, a guy driving on the road runs over a raccoon. He might feel some compassion for the raccoon, but he'll still keep on driving, right? A college student can turn on a TV and see a commercial of some starving kid in Africa. He's moved to compassion, and then he just clicks to the next channel. A friend could have a friend suffering from renal failure and so decide to give one of her kidneys to her friend. A parent could have a child so sick that she's moved with compassion in such a way that she leaves family behind, she leaves a secure job behind to go to some remote place where she doesn't know anyone in the hope that that place might offer treatment for their baby. See, compassion in our society ranges from superficial pity to heartfelt, deep-seated, anguishing sorrow. And so because that's the case, we ask ourselves, What is the nature of Jesus' compassion here? Where does it fall in this spectrum of how compassion can be expressed? Well, consider what it says in verse 35, and I think we get the answer. Read again what it says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I want to draw your attention to the first half of verse 35 where it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and all the villages. Now, first reading of that, you're like, okay, what's the big deal? Jesus likes to travel. He likes to go around. Why is that such a big deal? Why are you pointing this out? But 
slow down for a minute. Consider this behavior that Jesus is doing. He's going everywhere. He's going from city to city, but as he goes to city to city, he goes to every nook and cranny of the city. He goes to every possible location within every village that he encounters. That's weird behavior, right? Let me ask you New Yorkers, those of you who grew up here and lived here most of your life, anyone in here ever been to every possible restaurant in this city? Any of you guys ever been to every part of this city? You know, when we moved here eight years ago, my wife and I, we were shocked to discover that some of you guys who've lived here your whole life have been, have never been to certain parts of the city that other people have been to, right? Some of you guys maybe lived in two boroughs, maybe three boroughs, but never all five boroughs. And even in the boroughs that you lived in or worked in, you haven't been to everywhere. You haven't eaten at every restaurant. You wish you could, right? But you've never, it's not normal human behavior to try and go every single place, every possible place you go. You just don't have the time. You don't have the money, right? And yet in our passage, Jesus is behaving this way. Why? You know, for years, and as I read this behavior of Jesus, I never understood why he's going every possible location until quite recently I came across an article on a website called parents.com. I periodically like to peruse that website, especially in their advice section of how to be a better parent. And one day I came across an article that was entitled, What to Do If Your Child Gets Abducted. And in this article, a mom was recounting the true story of what she did when her daughter was kidnapped. Take a listen to what she says in her article as she describes the incident. Quote, when I heard the news, my daughter was kidnapped, I felt my legs collapse. I grabbed my husband and yelled, go find her. He raced off to the toy store to meet the cops, and a neighbor came to stay with me. As the reality of what happened began to sink in, I got hysterical, unable to stop sobbing. I felt sick to my stomach, as if I were going to faint. Time passed like an eternity. Family members and friends stayed with us until late in the evening. Finally, Doug and I crawled into bed at 2 a.m., but neither of us could sleep. We cuddled together and just listened to each other cry. Dark thoughts clouded my mind, and I've always heard that if you don't find an abducted child within the first 24 hours, odds are you won't find her alive. I stared at the ceiling, thinking that time was running out. By 6 a.m. the next morning, our fighter instinct had taken over, and the house quickly became command central. Neighbors helped make flyers and organize search teams. I drew maps of the neighborhood to hand out to scores of volunteers. I felt energized by the fact that there was something I could do. As I read these words, it was like a light bulb hit. And it finally made me understand Jesus' behavior, why he's going everywhere, why he's scanning every corner, why he's going down every street every alley. Jesus is behaving like a parent behaves when someone he deeply loves is taken away from him. He's acting like a parent would behave when his child has been kidnapped to where now the only thing he can think of is just getting this child home. See, when you understand that, then you begin to understand the nature of Jesus's compassion. Jesus's compassion is one in which he is willing to go anywhere. He is willing to do anything. He is willing to face anyone, regardless of the dangers and sufferings and sorrows that he would have to face, so that those whom he deeply loves are saved. That's the compassion of Jesus. And if you think about it, that is the ultimate reason why the harvest is so important to Jesus. Because here's the thing. The harvest doesn't represent all of mankind in general. The harvest is specifically referring to a specific portion of humanity who in the eyes of God are his precious children who have been ripped away from him and now are exposed to the gravest of all dangers. And he is doing all that he can to save them, to bring them back 
home. These are the lost. But here's what's so startling. Here's what's so sad. This compassion that Jesus has, as we'll see in just a moment, is not shared by God's people. This love for the lost that Jesus has, for some reason, his people don't share that same love for the lost. And so we ask ourselves, how can that be? Why is that the case? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, why the harvest is not important to us. Read again with me. We could have our passage up, verse 37, where Jesus says these sobering words. And he, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. According to Jesus, the harvest, which remember represents metaphorically the lost, those who have been taken away from God, those whom God wants to bring back home, right? He says those people, there are a lot of them. They're plentiful, right? And sure enough, that's still the case. As of 2015, there are 5.11 non-Christians roaming this earth, okay? Non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus, those who are lost, those whom God has a heart for, those whom God wants to bring back home, 5.11. And yet with that incredible amount of people who are in the gravest possible danger ever, Jesus says these heartbreaking words, the laborers are few. The laborers are few. Now, just to give you a little context here, in the agrarian society, which Israel was at the time, the laborers were the one who went out and collected the harvest, okay? In other words, the laborers were the harvesters. They were the one who went out when the crops were ready and brought back in safely into storage so they could continue to thrive and grow and eventually be used to feed others, okay? The laborers were the workers. They went out and they collected the harvest. Here's the question. If the harvest metaphorically represents the lost, okay, Who do the laborers represent, metaphorically? Who are they? The answer, God's people, right? Christians, those who represent the other portion of humanity who are no longer lost, who are now reunited, who are now back home with their God, right? And Jesus is saying it's them that are few. Now, he's not saying there are not enough Christians. He's saying there are not enough Christians who are doing the work of laboring, of going out, and claiming those who are so precious and so important To Jesus, that's what he's saying. And sad to say, not much has changed today. According to a recent Barna study, which is an organization that does research, statistical research, more and more evangelical Christians are doing less and less evangelism, less and less proselytizing. They're not going out and sharing their faith. They're not reaching out the lost. They're not going out and telling their friends, neighbors, coworkers about their need for Jesus and how God is calling them back home. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, you know what? And this is probably your inner defense attorney rising up right now, defending yourself. You're saying, oh, Pastor John, you don't understand. We live in a pluralistic society today. People are so sensitive now about not being intolerant. And, you know, if Christians started doing this evangelism nonsense that they did generations ago, we're going to be branded as being intolerant, and they're not going to like us. We're going to be ostracized from society, and people are going to just find us so disgusting, so, so rude, so intolerant to where they're not going to want to tolerate us. So you see, we're living in a harsh time to where we can't do this freely. Now, before you think you made your case and that the case is closed, consider these very sobering words from an atheist, a famous celebrity, a a comedian, magician by the name of Penn Jillette, This is what he said in one of his blog posts. as a video post. Can we have it up there? He says this, quote, I've always said that I don't respect Christians who don't proselytize, evangelize. 
I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not be getting eternal life and whatever, and you think that's, well, it's not really worth telling them this, it's because it would be socially awkward. And atheists would think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is more important than that. Christian, let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe with what Penn Jillette believes that this is the most important thing we are to be doing? If we're brutally honest, the answer is no, we don't. And maybe that's Jesus' whole point in terms of why he brings all of this up in the first place. Let me ask you something. Why do you think the laborers, right, given that there are enough of them, why do you think the laborers are not going out into the harvest? I.e., why do you think Christians, what reason do you think that they're neglecting this priority that God has for us, that he has for himself? Why do you think we, the laborers, are not going out and gathering the harvest. You ever thought about that? Well, it's interesting. If you just do a word study on the word harvest in the Bible, you know that the Bible speaks of it countless of times. Literally, it refers to an actual harvest, or metaphorically, symbolically, as it is in our passage today. But I want to focus on the book of Proverbs for just a moment. And the reason why I'm kind of isolating the book of Proverbs here is because that is the one part of the Bible where it actually describes the reasoning why the harvest is being neglected by harvesters, the laborers. Proverbs 6 says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Proverbs 10, verse 5, He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Interesting. According to the book of Proverbs, the reason why the harvesters are not harvesting is because according to Proverbs, they're sluggardly, they're slothful, they're sleepy. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're saying, wait a minute, Pastor John, are you implying that laziness is involved? And the reason why you're saying that is because you are, as New Yorkers and Asian Americans, you have a high sensitivity of being branded as lazy or unproductive, right? We hate being called lazy. We hate being called unproductive, and so we make it our effort to live productive lives, efficient lives, busy lives, right? Isn't that how we show off, how cool we are? Yo, I'm so busy. This is a busy week. You know, how was your week? Oh, I was busy. Even if you weren't, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm so busy. We hate it when we are being espoused as lazy or unproductive, and so when you hear the implication that you're envisioning in your mind, that the reason why you don't evangelize because you're lazy, you're like, that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm not a lazy person. You know what? Chill out for just a moment. Because that's not what Proverbs is saying when it refers to the sluggard or to the slothful or to the sleepy, right? It's not alluding to laziness when Proverbs refers to that. So that's the question. What is all of this alluding to? What is the sluggard? What is the slothful? What is the sleepy? Well, listen to what it says in Proverbs 23, starting in verse 19. We read, my child, listen and be wise. Keep your heart on the right course. Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons. For they are on their way to poverty and too much sleep clothes them in rags. Turns out in the book of Proverbs that the sluggard, the slothful, and the sleepy 
is actually the drunk. Someone who drinks way too much. Someone who is over-the-top intoxicated. So when you know that this is the Old Testament background, that this is probably what Jesus is saying when he refers to harvests that are being neglected by laborers, what is he saying? He's saying the reason why you, Christian, why you don't labor to the harvest is because you are a bunch of drunks. That's what he's saying. You're like, uh, <laughs> first off, you call me lazy, pastor. Now you're calling me a drunk? Where are you getting this from? I don't even drink. Again, chill out. <laughs> Jesus is speaking metaphorically, Right? Where the harvest represents the lost, the laborers represent Christians, and the drunkard represents what? See, the Bible tells us that it's possible to be a drunk even if you never drink one drop of alcohol. It is possible to be a drunk spiritually as a way of describing the condition of your heart and mind as it comes to the people around you. For example, in Revelation 18, there you see a picture of an angel describing the spiritual status of those who ultimately reject Christ at the end of the world. And listen to what it says there. Quote, For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. In reflecting on this very obscure verse, uh, pastor scholar Warren Wiersbe says this, quote, Christians in every age have had to heed the warning of 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, which says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. How easy it is to become fascinated by the things the world has to offer. Like a person taking a sip of wine, we can soon find ourselves drinking deeply and then wanting more. The world system that opposes Christ has always been with us, and we must be aware of its subtle influences. Again, it's possible to be a drunk even if you've never drunk one drop of alcohol. Because as far as God is concerned, if you are spiritually drunk, you're just as a fool as a literal drunk. Just as a fool? Yeah, just as a fool. Because what is a drunk? What kind of behavior does a drunk exhibit when they are drunk? Now, there are many behaviors that a drunk exhibits, but you know what recurring, common, general trait behavior that a drunk exhibits when they're drunk? They stop caring about the things that they deeply care about when they're sober. So, for example, let's say you have a short five foot two guy who cares about his health, cares about his safety, who would never in his right mind, you know, say any offensive word to a guy twice his life because he's such a wimp and he's so afraid. You get him intoxicated, all of a sudden he thinks he's Muhammad Ali. And he's like, yo, you, yeah, you, <laughs> six foot five, come here, you know. And all of a sudden he has boldness and all of a sudden his concern for his safety is gone. Or you have a wife who deeply loves her husband, is so committed to him loved him as if he's the only man on earth and yet at the office party she gets too intoxicated and that flirtatious partner of hers all of a sudden has his way with her and she willingly accepts destroying her marriage or how about a father who has a six month old daughter who loves his daughter more than life and then one night while he's babysitting he drinks too much gets drunk and he beats her to death because she's crying too much because she's teething it's a true story when you are drunk, one of the characteristics of drunken statedness is that you stop caring about the things that when you're sober, you care about more than sometimes your own life itself. 
And Christian, that's what happens. When you get so intoxicated, metaphorically speaking, with the things of the world, the things that you possess, the things that you acquire, the status that you try to earn through your work, the reputation you have among your friends, when you drink that all in, you exhibit the same characteristics to where you stop caring about the things who God calls you to deeply care about. That's drunkenness. Christian, the reason why so many of us do not prioritize seeking those whom God loves is because we're a bunch of drunks. That's just the reality. And so at this point, we ask ourselves, well, how do we sober up? How do we come out of this drunken stupor to where we're finally able to reclaim the affections that we should have for those that right now in our drunken state we have become so numb to because of the intoxications that we've come under. Well, this leads me to my final point, how the harvest can become important to us. Read again verse 38 with me. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now this is interesting. According to Jesus, the way that we sober up out of this stupor that we're in in our our, our drunken state with the world, our affections with the world, he says, you have to pray. And not just pray normal, just pray earnestly. Or some translation puts it, pray intensely. Pray constantly. Pray with earnest. That makes no sense. <laughs> what does prayer have to do with any of this stuff that we're talking about? Why is Jesus saying, hey, if you want to love the lost, if you want to prioritize the harvest the way I want you to, pray earnestly. Why? Well, what is prayer? Specifically, what's earnest prayer? Consider these words from Charles Spurgeon. He beautifully writes the nature of earnest prayer when he says this. Prayer comes spontaneously from those who abide in Jesus. Prayer is the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with Jesus. As the leaf and fruit come out of the vine branches without any conscious effort, simply because of its living union with the stem, so prayer buds and blossoms and fruits out of souls abiding in Jesus. As stars shine, so do abiders pray. They do not say to themselves, it is the time for us to get to our task and pray. No, they pray as wise men eat, namely when they desire for it is upon them. They do not cry out as, a, as, as one under bondage. At this time I ought to be in prayer, but I do not feel like it. What a weariness it is. Instead, they have a glad errand at the mercy seat and rejoice to go there. Hearts abiding in Christ send forth supplications as fires send out flames and sparks. Souls abiding in Jesus open the day with prayer. Prayer surrounds them as an atmosphere all day long. And at that, they fall asleep praying. They are able to joyfully say, when I awake, I am still with thee. Spurgeon is describing earnest prayer, intense prayer. And it all stems from what? A deep, deep love for Jesus. Earnest prayer is the fruit of a deep, abiding, growing, nourishing love for Jesus. So really, Jesus is saying what? He's saying this. Pray earnestly is his way of saying, love me. Love me deeply. Love me in in growth. Love me affectionately. Just love me. Now when you understand that, then you begin to understand his logic about how you become more concerned about the lost, how you get more concerned about the harvest. Because think about it. If you love Jesus and you keep growing in your love for Jesus, what does that result in? You start loving the things that Jesus loves, right? You know, before I married my wife, I was a slob. I know you think, oh, Pastor John, really? You were a slob? Yes, I was. Once upon a time, and before we got married, I never made my bed. It was gross. It was like my, my room reeked of Pastor John. 
right? It was a distinctive smell, right? And when we first got married, I made the mistake. Honey, it was a mistake. I wasn't intentional. But, you know, I used to wear contacts ancient years ago. And, and one time I put in my contact lens, and, and we were late for school. I was doing my second master's at the time. And so I left my contact lens, uh, you know, that little case that it comes in, right? And just when we were getting ready to go out the door, I hear a voice, babe, get in here right now. What's wrong? Like, come here, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. She takes me to the sick. You see this right here? Pointing to my contact lens uh, case. It's like, I can't. She's, that's all she says. I just can't. All right? I can't. And now, at first, I was like, I just married a psycho here. But now, look, at, I love to clean. In fact, I think I sometimes love cleaning more than she does. You know? I love to clean. I love, especially now that we have four kids who make everything a mess. You know, I love what she loves. That's what love does. To where the things that your lover loves becomes your love as well, which means the more you love Jesus, the more you love who he loves. Who does Jesus love? He loves the harvest. He loves the lost, right? Now, if you're honest, you're going to probably say to yourself, well, pastor, what if I don't love Jesus the way, you know, I should love him. What if I've been too intoxicated with the world? I've drunk the world in too much. And as you say, you know, when you're drunk, you don't care about those who you should care about. Maybe Jesus is one of those people. What do I do? The answer, you believe the gospel. That's what you do. What's the gospel? Well, in Matthew 26, Jesus tells us what the gospel is. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 26, we read, As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, "What? Take this and eat of it, for this is my body. And he gave a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Pause right there, your attention, please. The context of these words is that Jesus is speaking them at the very first Lord's Supper, the first communion which occurred the same night that he was later arrested, tortured, and eventually killed hours in the next day on the cross, okay? And it's in this meal that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples the significance of his impending death on the cross. He has to have his body broken. He needs his blood shed. Why? Because he came to this earth, God came to this earth as human form to be our savior substitute. That means he takes on the full penalty of all of our sins, past, present, and future, to where he suffers the full penalty of those sins, namely the wrath of God, right? So instead of you suffering that wrath, you instead experience what? You get to experience the father's table. You get to experience the homecoming that is coming to us when the Father brings his kingdom fully established on earth as a child comes to the dinner table where you will feast and eat and live out the significance of this reunion that you have with Jesus and through Jesus with the Father. You are back home, right? Rather than being banished away because of your sins. His body is going to be broken. His blood is going to be shed so that he could be the savior substitute. And why did Jesus do all this? Because he loves us, right? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say in this passage in Mark 27, he he doesn't say, I'm doing all this, mark my words, I'm doing this because I love you. He says, I'm doing all this in a way to show you that I love you by never drinking wine again. Isn't that interesting? 
what does that even mean? Mark my words, I will not drink wine until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What is that about? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that Jesus is trying to tell us. You know what he's telling us? First off, Jesus is not a drunk. Drunk, by definition, cannot stop drinking, right? A drunk always has to drink, right? A drunk is always drinking, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to stop. I'm going to not intoxicate myself with any sort of fermented drink. I'm not going to drink anything intoxicating, nothing remotely like alcohol. Why? What is he trying to say symbolically through that statement? Is he not trying to say that his care for you, his love for you, when you accept him as Lord and Savior, never goes away? Isn't he saying that his love for you never diminishes like the way a drunk father would diminish his love for his child and beat his child to death? He's saying, no. If you are in me and I am in you, my love for you is secure. My love for you is true. My love for you never wanes. It never weakens. It never gets numb through any sort of intoxication. More importantly, my love for you is sober, right? Jesus has sober love for us. What do you mean, sober love? They say that, you know, when you drink too much, ugly people get attractive. Have you heard that before? Hopefully none of you have experienced that. On the other side. You know how people say, like, you drink too much? All of a sudden, like, you got beer goggles on, right? Like, someone who you would think, oh, when you're sober, you're like, hey. When Jesus has sober love for you, you know what that means? He sees all your flaws. He sees everything about you that would make him, make you disgusting in his eyes, that should make you disgusting in his eyes. And he says, you know what? I still love you. Right? He sees all the things that would just make you so unattractive, so repulsive to him, and yet he says, no, my love for you is sober. I don't need any sort of false intoxicating things about you like your works, like your righteousness to make you more beautiful to me than you really are. I see all your ugliness. I see all your filth. And you know what? I still love you. His love for you is not in any way a false love. It is a genuine, sobering love. That's the first thing he's trying to say. When he says, I will never drink from this wine during the season of mission as I pursue the lost. It's so easy for us Christians. We see the lost. We see people who don't know know Christ. And we say, look at these people. They don't go to church. The way they live their lives, the way they treat their kids. And we judge them. Instead of showing compassion for them as Jesus does. And we think, Jesus wants nothing with you. Why would Jesus want you? You know, gay man, gay woman. Why would Jesus want you, liberal, Republican, Trump lover, Trump hater? Right? Look at the way you lived your life, sleeping around. Look at you, the way you treated your parents. Jesus doesn't want you. You're not attracted to Jesus. Jesus says, I love them. And my love for them is not a drunken, stupor love. It's a sober love. The same love I had for you, Christian, when you at one point were not a Christian. That's what he's saying. And when you understand that, then you understand the second thing that Jesus is trying to convey to us when he says, I'll never drink the wine. You know what that means? He's saying it's not the time to celebrate. This is not the time of celebration right now. What he means is that one day I will celebrate. One day I will drink the wine. Now, as a quick aside, some people have taken verse 29 and said, see, Jesus doesn't want us to drink alcohol. He's against alcohol. If you ever drink alcohol, you're living in sin. That's not what verse 29 is saying. In fact, the Bible does never say 
that God commands us to never drink alcohol. And the reason why I know this is the case is because if you look at the first miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of John, you know what it is? It turns water into wine. And it wasn't grape juice. I know the Southern Baptists love to interpret the, <laughs> the wine as grape juice. Welch's grape juice. It was Welch's grape juice. No, it was wine. It was alcohol. It was the buzz drink. It was, the, it was grandpa's cough medicine. It was alcohol. He's not against alcohol in and of itself. He is against drunkenness. But what he is saying is it's not time to celebrate yet. Why? Just like it wasn't time to celebrate before you were a Christian. Christian? Because he was saying, we can't celebrate yet. Not all of my family members are at the table yet. Right? One of the things I love about Korean culture, one of the few things I love about Korean culture, is that when we eat together, we don't just start eating once the food is in front of us. We wait till everybody is at the table. Right? That's common courtesy. Wish Westerners really accepted that, right? But we sit at the table until everyone is there. Until everyone who should be there is there. And Jesus is saying, we can't celebrate yet, guys. Which Christian, that means you shouldn't be celebrating now, metaphorically speaking. Intoxicating yourself with the things of the world, getting drunk with the th- This is not the time of celebration. This is time of mission. This is the time of the harvest. This is the time where we go and we seek out our family who are not yet our family yet, but are God's family. We are in the business of reuniting God to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not yet our brothers and sisters in Christ. What now, NCF? What now? You know what now is? It begins with us taking a first importance, what Jesus says is a first importance. You know what the first importance is? It's the harvest. The harvest. Let me ask you, are you looking for your family right now? Are you concerned about the lost as our Jesus is concerned for the lost? This time I want to invite you to reflect before I close in prayer, just a couple things and I want to just invite you just to Close your eyes for just a few moments as I really want to ask you just one question in light of today's message. Just one question, and it really boils down to this. Are you ready? Here it is. NCF, are you drunk right now? You know what I mean. Are you drunk right now? Have you become so intoxicated with the things of this world to where you have stopped caring about those whom you never should have stopped caring for. Where is your heart? Where's our heart towards the lost? Where's our heart towards the harvest? Do you think about and pray for those who have been separated from God? Or is the busyness of career advancement, hanging out with friends, taking your kids to the next lesson, to the next game, spiritually inebriated you to the point where you have stopped caring about those whom your God never stops caring for. I invite you now to go to God and reflect on today's message. Let's pray.
Father, as we come to you now, lifting up our, what I hope are earnest prayers, we ask, Lord, that you would help us as we grow in our love for you, that we would also love whom you love. Lord, help us to love the harvest. Lord, you call yourself the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest. Lord, we know what lords are to do. They protect, they provide under those of your lordship. And Father, we know that as a parent who has lost a child, Lord, you seek the lost. You yearn for the lost and you desire the lost to be reunited with you. And Father, you look to us and you say, where are my laborers? Where are my harvesters? Now, Father, as we think about ourselves, we wonder, have we been too busy with the things of this world? Have we become intoxicated with the wines of this world? And have we drunk so deeply to the point where we become sleepy towards the harvest, where we have been slothful towards the harvest, to where we have, like a shameful son, just neglected it? God, would you help us now as we move forward in this direction towards independence that we would be the church that you have always called us to be, that we would be the people that you would call us to be. God, give us the heart of the harvester. Give us the heart of Jesus so that we would go out into the world and reclaim our brothers and sisters in Christ who are waiting for us to come claim them, who are waiting for us to bring them back home into your presence. God, would you hear us and help us? For we cannot do this on our own strength. We need your strength. We need the strength of the vine working through us, the branches, so that we would bear fruit for this world, for the lost to enjoy and to become engrafted into you. God, would you hear this prayer? And would you bless it by deepening our love for you, thereby deepening our love for the lost? our love for the harvest. Oh God, we count on you and we need you. Hear us now, for we pray all these things in your holy and precious name and all God's people together said, amen. We're not gonna give God his tithes and our offering. You're visiting us today. We don't expect you to give, but if you are a member of this body, let's give to God what is rightfully his. Let's give him his tithes and our offerings.